0: It's frustrating when you get to your point, a younger attorney or a newer attorney, who you can just tell that their pressure is coming from above um mm-hmm. per billable hours, Bills. billable hours, billable yeah. hours, billable hours. And so you can just see it. It's like running through it. It's like, no, I want to know what the chance of success is. And then I'd like to see your plan as how we're going to get to that success instead of, you know, we got to do these nine steps first in every single case. Um, I, I just don't. Maybe that was a thing of the past. I don't really see that as a productive way to handle litigation moving forward. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I am super excited to, for today's episode. We are joined by Todd McGrath. And Todd is a VP of claims um, has years and years of experience. And, you know, he's here. He's going to come on to talk about like what he's experienced during his career in claims, how it's changed, where he sees it going, and just what he thinks is important as to, you know, what he looks to when he hires people, what he looks to, you know, an outside counsel, all good things. um, And all things I think everyone wants to hear. So with that, let's bring him in. Good morning, Todd. Welcome to the Defense of Arrest. How are you?
0: Great. How are you this morning, Megan?
1: I'm great. I'm so happy to have you. Um, I don't know where where are you located right now? Where are you sitting?
0: So I'm in beautiful Jacksonville, Florida. And as I recall, you're in the northeast, correct?
1: Yeah, but it's gonna be like so you... 70 today. So I oh, feel wow. like I'm in Florida.
0: <laughs> I've got a short sleeve shirt on um and casual shorts. You've got a sweater on. So it's just I guess a little reflective of the time of year and where we're from.
1: Yeah, and, and we, I keep my house at a, a nice cool sixty five. <laughs> <So, laughs> oh wow. So, wow! so it's always a it's always sweatshirt season here, even in the in August. <laughs> right,
0: right, right.
1: <laughs> well, I I'm so happy to have you on. You know, you and I talked a few weeks ago, um, and had like just a, a i i lengthy great long conversation on the phone and um you know you've had such a long career in claims and have such a like a wide vast long experience that um i thought you'd would, it'd would be great to have you come on and you know share your experiences um but before we we hop in i i ask all my guests this because i i think it's it's a different answer for everybody um but how how did you get into claims was it something you know that was, was insurance in your family? Or were you like a lot of people that kind of just fell into it?
0: So I fell into it. Actually, when I, when I graduated, I worked my way through college as a waiter and some other jobs. And when I graduated from college, I was actually talking to my dad and saying, you know, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And he said, how about a claim adjuster? I said, I have no clue what that is. So I started doing a little research and um, found a couple openings and applied and, and interviewed and was selected, oh, probably within six months of getting out of college. And I, and I started with a, one of the larger insurance companies a claim, as a claim adjuster in Southern California. And what I really found... Um, pleasant about it. Although it was an office job, you did have a lot of freedom because I was a field adjuster. And so you're going on inspections, you're meeting different people, every claims a little bit different. I had a very unique area, uh, including Malibu, California, which is a beautiful beachside city and Santa Monica and the San Fernando Valley. And um, so kind of every day was a little bit different. And then it just took off from there. And the company that I was with. Uh, had a promote from within policy and I graduated to the, you know, leadership and then medium leadership. And then when I left the company about five years ago, I was a senior leader um, for the past 10 years or so. And so it was just a, it was a really, really good career. And I, I think it's, I think claims is a noble profession that is intended to do good and help people and oftentimes a great, you know, area of need, you know, usually as a claim adjuster, you're going out after something bad happened. Yeah. You know, it's a, you know, water loss or a weather loss or an earthquake or a storm or a freeze. And so you're there to help people. I just found that very, very pleasant to, to do.
1: Now, during your time as a field adjuster, I'm sure you saw your fair share of interesting, <laughs> interesting claims. Are there any that even stick out to you to this day? Everyone's like, oh, man, I remember that that claim in Malibu.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. And um, probably not as much on the day-to-day claims, but I was a claim adjuster for about seven years before I started my leadership career. And during that seven years, I probably went on about a dozen catastrophes. And a catastrophe was defined by more than a thousand claims in a short period of time. It's like a, I worked on the Northridge earthquake. I worked the Loma Prieta earthquake. I worked some rush fires, and I remember um, a claim in Spokane, Washington, where a gentleman—it was kind of a sad story—but a, a gentleman um, uh, was was trying to get home because his his house was in the path, and mm-hmm. he he just couldn't make it, and finally got stopped by the by the authorities. And then the next day, he went up there and just everything was destroyed. I just all yeah, he did have a a basement, and it's just a cavern in the in the ground. And I was there. the the day after and met with them and uh, just kind of walked through the the steps over the next month. And, you know, there's several of those. I remember the Loma Prieta earthquake. I was stationed in downtown San Francisco. Fantastic duty. And I was right on the right on Fisherman's Wharf. But my goodness, the devastation that that earthquake did. And the, the challenge there is that in California, Earth movement or earthquake isn't covered under your standard homeowner policy. Yeah. You have to have an earthquake policy, and so many people just didn't, and you were just out there with them saying, "I there's nothing I can do for you." You know, yeah. I just felt terrible. But others, you know, you go on like a hurricane or a, or a hailstorm, and you're there. It's all covered damages, and you're telling, "Hey, we'll get through this. Um, I'll work with your contractor. I'll pay you an amount of money. You can get it all done." And that's probably the more pleasant part of the
1: of the job where you can really help people out. Yeah, I mean that's you really see both sides. Like you 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 see such devastation, you want to be able to help, and then you have to right. somehow deliver, you know, not such great news to people who you really you, you want you're you're there to help if you can, but you can't create coverage that they don't have.
0: Correct. <laughs> um, Correct.
1: But I I mean it just it takes a certain level of empathy too. Um, it to does. have to be out there with you know, people have lost everything. Um, it, it's, I mean, and it's just, I think it's eye-opening and it probably really helps um, ground you, you know, and appreciate what you have.
0: Right. And so, increase you your know, own it, coverage. <laughs> that's correct. And so today I'm a vice president of claims for a medium-sized insurance company. And oftentimes, you know, over the last oh, 10 or 15 years, as I talk to Um, young adjusters coming into the industry or those that have been here for a bit, I I often share, if you don't have feeling for people when you deny a claim, or if you don't have a sense of joy, we could really help someone out. You're probably in the wrong profession because this really is a people business and it's all about relationships and how you um, you know, you deal with people. And like I said before, oftentimes all the time, it's after something bad mm-hmm. that happened. They don't just call up a claim adjuster. Hey, you want to go to lunch today? No, they call up a claim adjuster because my house is flooded because the pipe burst while I was at work today. And so, um, I, I just tell people you have to have feeling and caring about other people to be really successful in this business. Yeah.
1: yeah I, I couldn't agree more. And also what I, I realize this, um, guess it was like two years ago we like we had a a pipe that broke in our our house so I was on the other you know on the other side um of a claim for once and it that was you know interesting too for me because I I have an appreciation for what's on that claim adjuster's desk um so I felt like Matt was a good claimant (laughs) 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 but but you know it, it you, you suddenly put in the shoes like oh well now I know how it feels to be on on the other other side and waiting for the right. answers and like you know waiting to have someone come out and do the assessment and you know the, seeing the numbers and be like wait I'm not so happy with these numbers and yes. You, know, yes you know so it is eye-opening to you know kind of have be in a a change of perspective I should say
0: you know, my mother lives in Southern California and um, over the last, oh, four to six weeks, they've had tremendous rain, which they haven't had in a long time, and wind, da- and wind. And her roof was damaged by wind and she had uh, rain damage, water damage inside. And she's, um, you know, to the point where she doesn't, you know, Deal with these situations like I, it's it's my bailiwick. It's what I do, and so I assisted her in in handling that claim. And it was very interesting to to your point, be on the other side of it and see some of the challenges. It's you know it, 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 at a couple of points I wanted to tell the adjuster, no, it's that's not how you handle the situation. But <laughs> you know you need to work your way through it, and and we did, and it worked out fine. But it is interesting to be on the other side of a claim, and it teaches you a lot as a claim professional that wow, that's not the way we're supposed to do it. Or this this guy or this young lady did a really, really nice job in this aspect of the claim or whatever. So it is interesting seeing it from both sides.
1: Now, and, and knowing like, you know, where you started and where, where you are now and starting in the field, is that a place that you kind of recommend? You would personally recommend as a good starting point for anyone coming into, claim, into claims who have like a really good idea of, you know, having your boots on the ground and, you know, seeing the process from, from the start?
0: So I would, um, however, the industry, the claim profession has changed tremendously over the last you know, two or three decades. And it's not as easy to join a company as a field representative because it's evolved. Um, nowadays, more often times than not, you see consolidation, you see call centers, you see in-office claim handling, and then the technology that's come along there's a certain percentage of claims that back in my day, you would go out, you'd get in the car, you'd pull your ladder out, you'd climb on the roof, you'd go inside, you'd photograph and take measurements and document, write an estimate. Nowadays, there's all kinds of technology that allow you to, well, what, exactly what we're doing right now. There's some technology through a huge vendor where I can send you a link and you can click on the link and you can take your um, iPhone. Mm-hmm. And I can say, okay, Megan, walk into the bathroom. Now put your phone, show me the corner of the bathroom. Okay, now walk back out. I want you to st- walk across the street and show me a glimpse of your house. And through that, through this technology, we can gain measurements and damage assessment I Can write an estimate over the phone, send you a check, and then you go get a contractor. And if there's a disparity in the, in the contract, or in the estimates, then we can resolve that. But being a field adjuster is probably one of my more favorite jobs. I I love being an executive now. It's a a whole different job. I have a lot of, you know, authority and control over what we do. But a field adjuster is just so, it's really a neat job. You set your own schedule. You set your own pace. Sometimes there's long hours and long days. But um, today, more oftentimes than not, people either coming out of college or changing professions and coming in as a an adjuster, more oftentimes than not, you'll see them be an inside adjuster first. Um, And a lot of, like my company now, we don't, we have a small staff of field adjusters, but our primary business model, about 70 or 75% of our claims come to an assigned examiner at our company. And then the field work is farmed out to an independent adjusting company or a third party administrator. They go out and inspect it. They're usually 1099 employees and they work for multiple independent adjusting companies. They go out, they produce an estimate photos, they upload it to us, we evaluate it and pay the claim. So it's really evolved. The profession's really, really evolved um, over the years.
1: Now, and when you you mentioned the technology, it made me think about this too. while technology ha- having these other means of gathering the information, I think is a, ver- is a positive, I do see some negatives to, to it as well. Like there sometimes te- technology can't replace like having your, you know, your feet and your eyes and your hands there. Um, so, I mean, ha- have you seen throughout your, your career that, you know, and more recently with the increase of tech, like the, all these tech packages to look at the the claims, you do see some negatives to it as well.
0: I do. Um, there is, you know, I being a little bit more old school, I, I agree with you. There's nothing to replace the human touch. But I also have realized that it's really important today in today's times to realize who your customer is. And I'll give you an example. So I just said my mom's claim. Uh, my mom, I talk to her every week. Sometimes she has she struggles uh, opening an email. Yeah. or sending a text or bill pay. And so she needs someone to come out to her house to walk her through and say, here's what's damaged. Someone's gonna need to take off that drywall and replace it and then paint it. To contrast that, my son a few years ago had an auto claim. And um, I forget the carrier, it was, an, it, was a, it was another carrier. He didn't wanna talk to anybody. <laughs> he said send, He said, send me a text. Um, give me an address for the body shop. I'll drop off the car. Um, you can, we'll text back and forth. He didn't want to talk to anybody. And so that was his way of saying, that's how I consider exceptional customer service. If you tried that with my mom um, she would be very frustrated. And through the point where it's like, I, I don't like this process. So I think it's really, really important nowadays to gauge who your, who your customer is and really, um, meet them where they want to be met, whether it's electronic, yeah. whether it's over the phone, whether it's in person, whether it's email, whether it's text, whether it's Zoom, whether it's whatever. Because in today's time with, with the insure tech is what they call it, the technology, we can meet almost anyone's needs. If you're a traveling person and you want us to go uh, meet with your realtor to get into the house and look at it, we can do that. If we want to do it over Zoom, we can do that if we want to come out and meet you and spend you know two hours at your dining room table and walk you through it, we can do that. I just think it's important to really gauge who your customer is because you want, at the end of the day, you want them to be satisfied. Right. For them to be satisfied, you don't want to jam something down their throat, that this is the way it's going to be whether you like it or not. It's like, how do you want this process to go? Like you said before, we're not going to create coverage where there, there is no coverage. However, there's ways to talk through some things, and I've done it many a times over my career, where you sit down with someone or you explain to them, man, I'm sorry. There's just no coverage. And I'll pull out the contract and say, see this clause right here. It just prevents me from paying anything. And, and, you know, many times I'll say, Hey, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for coming out and explaining it to me. Um, So, you you know, it's just, again, it's important to judge your, your customer who you're dealing with.
1: Yeah. And and to that point too, there are like, you have to meet your customer so they become a repeat customer. So if you're only doing it one way, they're going to, there are, that they're going to leave for you know find the take their business elsewhere to find another company that's going to meet their needs so you have to be most <clears throat> multifaceted with how you you know you serve your customers
0: i do when i when i talk with some of our some of our claims folks i say there's plenty of reasons for insurers to leave a company there's all kinds of marketing techniques and pricing uh, things you know people will you know, they'll see an ad, they'll get a mailer and they'll call up this company and they'll they'll save a hundred dollars on their homeowner policy so oh, I'm gonna go there. That's fine. there's some of that's outside of our control. But we should never leave someone with such a bad claim experience that that's the reason they're leaving your company. That's when we've truly failed. Um, even if you can't provide coverage or you, you you can't pay as much as they think they're entitled to, you can still make it a pleasurable experience. So if someone if someone's leaving our company because of a claim experience, we failed miserably.
1: Yeah, and it, 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 it's good that you bring up the, the the aspect about cover, like whether or not you can provide coverage. Because I feel like that that is probably a sticking point with a lot of customers. Because you you can't provide coverage; that isn't there. But I'm sure, as we just discussed earlier, delivering that news is never easy. And sometimes right. I, I imagine a lot of customers are like, "Well, what do you mean? I don't have." Right. And they they try to pass the buck back to the company, being like, "Well." But, and they get angry, you know, and that, and and it's a hard balance, you know, because you're like, you you can't just be like, oh, well, okay. (laughs) Like, that's not how this business works.
0: Right, right, right. Well, I, you know, claims, for those who have a real black and white mentality, claims is probably not the best place for you. Because there, there are a lot of gray areas, there's, you know, there's things that are just crystal clear. So you have a claim on uh, March 1st, and you go get a policy on March 5th. Well, you didn't have a policy when the claim happened. There's no coverage for that. <laughs> but you go out and there's a difference between, is that wind damage or is it wear and tear? And, and I like to say, kind of like in baseball, the tie should go to the runner. So, yeah. And there's a legal theory that I'm sure you're well aware of, is he who drafts the contract is adverse. Any 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 coverage question goes to the benefit of the insured, not the insurer. And if you're trying to defend something that's ambiguous in your policy, or that isn't clear to the, to the reasonable person or a juror, if you will, then it's going to go against you. And the quicker you learn that, the better you understand that early on, that if you see an ambiguous situation, start leaning on the, on, in the favor of the insured to try to find ways to pay that claim.
1: Yeah, um, and another, another thing I just thought of too, when we were talking about technology, and it, it, the increase of insure tech, how, and now that you're at, you know, the management level, the executive level, are, are you seeing a big impact on workforce with that? Because obviously with more technology, you need less people. So you don't need to have as many people working for your company. So it's, maybe it's beneficial from a, you know, a dollars and cents perspective, but from a, like a man force perspective, you obviously can decrease your man force. So how, how have you seen that shift you know, where, where you are now or throughout your career.
0: or woman force,
1: but um, <laughs>
0: <Yes>. <laughs> um, no, that is it. That, that's long been a struggle and, and it's a balance. So I, uh, from the claims perspective, we don't generate income for an insurance company. We're not marketing. We're not bringing in customers. We're not raising premiums or accepting premiums. We're just applying a contract. And part of the job of a claims professional like myself is balancing indemnity versus expenses. And, you know, there, there's one school of thought that says when you cut one, the other one's going to, you know, raise. So it's got to be a balance. But one of the things that you have to do to be competitive as an insurance company, <clears throat> excuse me, from a claims perspective, is you have to manage your expenses. And so I like to say, we're not going to get this technology. And then tomorrow I'm going to lay 10 people off. What I like to say is this technology can help us get to this point where maybe through attrition, we don't need to replace the next 10 people. So um, it does, it, it it can impact staffing, but I really see that as a good thing because you're managing your expenses.
1: Yeah. Um, so I got a little off topic, but this goes, this kind of goes, <laughs> <laughs> this kind of goes hand in hand with, you know, workforce and, you know, so you're... You know, you're kind of at the top of the the totem pole here. Um, but you know, so you've had years of team management um, right. and looking at what works and what doesn't work. So when you're you're looking at, I'll, I'll start at the 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 more and lower level, not lower level, but not uh, management level. But what sort of traits are you looking for? in, in an individual in the claims position that you see is like, okay, this is, these are the traits I look at. This is someone that I really think will be a valuable member, really rise up the ranks and, you know, pave the, pave a good path for themselves into the management role in the future.
0: Right. So what I look for in entry-level employees, I don't interview as many entry-level employees as I have in past years. Today, most of my time is spent with um, promoting and bringing people into higher levels of leadership and creating, you know, or different parts of the organization that make sense. However, when, you, when we look at entry-level people, the things that I focus on or have my people focus on is people that understand customer service, people that understand you're not making widgets here. We're not going to judge you on whether you can manufacture 10 pairs of shoes a day or whether you can make this. No, your whole role is customer service. And people, you can tell over a short period of time, if someone appreciates that or understands that, that this is all about relationship building. And if you're, you know, you're, you're not smiling, you're not nice. You're not, you don't have empathy. You can't give me concrete examples of times when you've um, helped others or you've serviced others, or you, or if you have experience in the customer service arena, I don't care whether it's making sandwiches at Subway or working as a a nurse or doing, you know, show me examples of where you've provided exceptional customer service. You've gone out of your way to help someone else. And then, you know, when it comes down, if we have a pool of candidates, it comes down to, you know, if we we can only hire two and I have six really good candidates uh, it comes down to, I look at myself and I say, I'm going to be looking across the desk at this person once a week or every other day for the next 10 years is that a good, sit- like, I look at you, you look like a very pleasant person. I can sit across the desk from you and talk to you. Some people just look surly and nasty. It's like, I don't want to put myself through that. So customer service, just good general people that understand that the claims to be a, a successful claims professional, you have to understand that you're in the people business and, and helping people business.
1: So what about at the management level though? What, you know, what do you think makes a, a, a good you know, manager to, to help a department grow and function and, you know, kind of be a well-oiled machine.
0: Right. So some of the similar characteristics, however, when it gets to leadership um, I look for things, there's a couple of things that are just have to be a given. You have to be technically sound. You have to understand what the contract says, what the homeowner policy says, what the renter's policy says. You have to understand how, what that contract is, both section one and section two, the liability, the medical payments, the property damage. So um, you have to understand that. Otherwise, how can I trust you to teach others how to do that? The second thing is um, I like to see examples of organizational skills. There's nothing more frustrating for a group of adjusters to come into a meeting or come into the boss's office and it's all skill. You can't find anything and do anything. Or they'll ask someone to do something that, okay, I need this report on my desk by Friday. And then you never follow up and two weeks go by and they haven't asked you again, Then it starts to give you the impression that was that just busy work they were asking me to do, or was that really? So organizational skills, people skills, um, technical skills, um, and and just a genuine interest in what they're doing. If they're here because look, I'm only going to work eight hours and that's it. I'm gone. That's not really what you're looking for in a leader. A leader really needs to be there for their people, Um, and, and, you know, positive and, um, you know, just something pleasant to work with. Um, But, you know, some of the things that are given, like I said, technical skills, but, um, you know, being able to build relationships and develop relationships and take, take pride in the fact that the people that report to you um, there's only one person that's going to develop them and make them better. It's difficult for me to reach down into the, the ranks per se and say, I'm going to pick Susie. I'm going to help her develop. It's, it's hard to do that. I have a, a staff of you know, managers and an assistant vice president that I deal directly with day in and day out. Um, but a first-line manager, they have to understand that you need to take and invest time in your people and help develop your people to whatever they want to be. Some people want to move into leadership. Some people just want to say, hey, I want to be the best adjuster I can be because it's a great profession and, and that. And so um, one who really takes interest in the folks who report to them.
1: Yeah, that's definitely something, you know, we've come across a lot in, you know, in at my firm and at firms, I've seen that, you know, I, in my career, I've seen a lot of attorneys try to get pushed into a place that they, that maybe they don't, they shouldn't be in like, you know, some attorneys are the ones who come in, put their head down, they build their hours, you know, and that that's their job. There's others that are excel at marketing and that, you know, they're and it's really, it's similar, like an idea of like, what, you know, don't push someone to be in a role that that isn't a natural role, or they don't want to be in. Um, you know, people are better off doing what they're what they feel most comfortable and what they're good at. Not to say that you can't push people outside their comfort zone, of course, but you know, sure. if if you have someone who who likes, you know, say to sit in a room and write appellate briefs, d- don't make them go out to marketing lunch. Exactly. <laughs> they, probably wanna, they probably don't want to do that.
0: <laughs> I've seen that multiple times over the years, especially with attorney with, with law firms. We've dealt, I've dealt with law firms for years and years and years, and you'll see someone who maybe is a really, really good at research and writing, you know, they can write briefs and letters and this and that. And the firm, for some reason, tries to cram them into a trial attorney role where they go into a deposition and they're fumbling and they're nervous. um, Others who are phenomenal in front of a jury or, or great in a deposition, or sometimes we have fraudulent claims, unfortunately, and you have an attorney really grind and get into the details of it. Um, but maybe they're not the best at research or writing a brief or writing a report or whatever. And so it, it, it's the same, probably in many, many fields. You got to look at what the strengths of that person are, what their desires are, then help them get there. Or on the other side, help them understand that that is not really going to help. That's not, you're not going to make it there. (laughs) I just Don't see you as that stellar trial attorney someday. So why don't we focus you somewhere else that you can be more successful.
1: Yeah, you really have to have an idea of people, like people's individual strengths, and I think that's it is on a management level to recognize recognize that. And again, not to that you can't challenge people to kind of push outside their comfort zone a little bit, but forcing someone to do something that just isn't in their skill set, it's probably not going to end up in a a well.
0: (laughs) Right, right. I mean, there's nothing wrong with asking them. You can ask someone, what are your what are your desires? What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do? Where do you see yourself going? And sometimes people will say, I don't want to be a manager. I can't stand manager. I don't want to. Well, have you ever tried it? No. Well, let me give you a shot at it for a month. Let's see if you even, if there is something there in your field, let's see you try a small case or let's say you sit second chair to see if the trial world is where you want to be, but have people submit. I think that's where you get real true engagement and, and buy-in from employees when they, they can see that you have a genuine interest in them. And to your point, challenge them that, okay, you've tried it now. You've confirmed it really isn't your Wick or your, your strong suit. So let's find somewhere else that we can carve out for you.
1: So and while we're on the, the topic of attorneys... We'll segue right into this. <laughs> in your role, you deal with outside counsel all the all the time, um and this is yes. something I, I I talk to a lot of people on this podcast about. People in, in similar roles as yours is, you know, what what are what are some things that you are looking for in your outside counsel, like things that you're like, man, this this is something that when I find it, I know I found like a hidden gem or I found my rock star. um And conversely, you know, what are some things that you were like, I Relationship almost sometimes relationship killers. Like I, I don't want to work with that person anymore.
0: So again, similar to, to, to the question about what I look for entry level people is there are things that have to be a given with, with outside counsel today. And for the last, I don't know, several years, I deal with defense counsel on first party, bad faith litigation. That's just, we also have third party liability, but first party bad faith is where the most exposure is. And so Um, I look for attorneys who have experience in that area and have the unique ability to, when we send them a claim file because we've been sued for um, breach of contract and bad faith and punitive damages, to tear that file apart and very objectively, honestly, give me the good, bad and ugly. If I have an attorney and I've seen this over the years, but you have an attorney who says, oh, you guys are perfect. Everything's great. You know, we're going we're gonna to crush these guys. And then at the 11th hour on the courtroom steps, they say, ooh, you better pony up a couple hundred thousand dollars to settle this thing. Well, heck, you've been telling me all along. We're fantastic. I'd rather know right at the beginning, here's the problems that you have with this file. There's delay, or you made a bad coverage decision, or you did this, or you did that. Um, so they have to be able to look me in the eye and tell me, um, the second thing that I or another thing that I really value that, and that I think is a distinguisher between really good attorneys and middle of the road attorneys are those that can um, write, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that can concisely write a evaluation, a report. You know, that first report that I get from our attorneys, usually, I don't know, three, four, five, six, eight, ten 10 pages to really break down the file, to apply the case law um you know we do business in 48 states and i don't know all the laws in west virginia or idaho or i live in florida i know a lot of those i'm from (laughs) california i know a lot of those but someone to 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 pick that apart and say oh here's something special in west virginia that you've probably never seen before so this is what we're going to face and you're going to need an expert in this area to testify at the time of trial whatever so a, a real comprehensive experienced attorney i'm not a real fan maybe i was years ago of bringing on Newer attorneys and letting them test out their bad face skills on us. I don't need to do that anymore. I have a place where I can we can afford and we can use the the, the best of the best to 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 do our work.
1: Um, one thing I'm, I actually am curious about because when you mentioned the case law, because this is just something that I, I personally have with reporting. I, I do not like putting like run-of-the-mill mundane case law in reports I'm like we don't need to be defining negligence like we don't couldn't agree more <laughs> um but sometimes I'm like I-, I don't think people want to see th- see that and I always push back I'm like we only want to talk about the case law if it's very specific to this case or there's some defining Point in this case that we want to mention it that it's very applicable to to what's going on in our case. Otherwise, I'm like we don't need to be tell, like defining negligence or or putting out the the elements of of this particular thing here. I mean, they know, they know that's just like space filler. That's just like filling up a a paragraph of a report that we could just say this is a negligence matter,
0: <laughs> and it sticks out like a like a sore thumb. If I'm looking at a report that is 12 pages long, and I got the point in the page and a half, I have no problem picking up the phone and call the attorney and say, first of all, what are you doing? I mean, is this for silly billable hours? Or is it, why are you doing this? You probably cut and paste from some yeah. you know, clerk or something that you have. No, cut to the show. I'll give you an example. We had a claim many years ago in Florida. It was up in the panhandle of Florida where we insured a boat. It was, I, I want to say, about a 40-foot, nice you know, liner boat. And it was in a marina. And due to some negligence on the part of the insured, their boat caught fire and burned the marina down. And so I think we had maybe a $300,000 liability policy, no umbrella. And there was, I think, 3 or $4 million damage to the, to the marina. I sent it to our attorney, a gentleman I've known for years, and just probably one of the best I, I've ever worked with, I said, how are we going to get out of this mess? Well, he did some research, and son of a gun, there's maritime law that applies to that that limits the amount of damage that you can recover to the value of your um your boat. And your and it goes way back into the shipping days where yep. ship liners, you probably know what I'm talking about. The ship liners <laughs> would come across and if they'd run into someone or the, the only damages you could get was the value of their mm-hmm. uh, boat and the uh the, the merchandise that was on the boat. And so we are able to get out of that case for within policy limits, but that's where I like someone who's creative and can think outside the box and say, let me explain to you what the theory of negligence is. I don't need that. I got that. I understand that. Heck I've never handled a maritime law. So yeah, load me up with that. Yeah. So attorneys who are willing and able to, to look at a case and look at, you know, a whole bunch of different options, not just You know, let's let's get a bunch of interrogatories, requests for admissions, um depositions, experts, and then we'll tell you what to do. No, 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 no. Give me an idea right now. Do we have a high degree of success? If it's a 50-50 case, I'm gonna settle it. I'm gonna be settling it all day, every day. If you're saying, wow, you got you guys did everything right, you made the right coverage decision you're in a decent venue we're going to have a decent jury pool you have the right experts okay i'll run with that all day long but i'd like to know that right away and the good attorneys who are experienced in doing this they can look at one and within a week or so they can they can pretty much give you you know the good bad and ugly like i said before
1: yeah I, and i feel like some of that comes from a place of insecurity like the, there's some attorneys that are like oh well i just need to do all these things because right. that's what you 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 do and it I, I I don't know if insecurity is the right word, but that's how I feel. It's like, they just don't, know, they don't know what else to do. So they're like, oh, I'm just going to follow the rule book and this right. is what the rule book says. And this is what I've always taught. So I'm going to do what the rule book does. And I'm just going to run down the list. And, you know, I, I, I've, i I know pl- lots of attorneys who have, who function like that. And for some. He, I think for some maybe it works fine, um, but I do think it's insecurity and maybe a little bit of in, inexperience or never getting pushed outside. Exactly. Look, look. I used to be like that. Like when I was a young, like younger attorney, I'm like, I, well, I don't know what else to do. So I'm like, well, I know I need to take steps. I know I need to serve. Step to one,
0: <laughs> step two, step three, step four. Regardless of what the the situation is, you put the the same process in place for every single one, and I I, I see that as kind of a waste of time, maybe even a waste of expenses. I'll give you another example. So from a claims perspective where that comes in, I don't know if you've heard of SIU, Special Investigative mm-hmm. Unit. It's units that investigate claims where there's what's called NICB indicators of fraud. And so it might be maybe they've had multiple claims in a short period of time, or they a claim within a week of taking out the policy, or um, the, the, the loss was intentionally, you know, there's there's indication for the fire department that there's accelerants or someone burned the house down. So in SIU, um, sometimes people get into that same mindset. Okay, the first thing I'm going to do is take a statement. The second thing I'm going to do is send out a reservation. Try. Third thing I'm going to do is approve a loss, Fourth thing I'm going to do is get a UO. Fifth thing, and they go through this series. And, and, and sometimes within the first couple of weeks, you've got sufficient evidence. You've got a document that's fraudulent or whatever. You can make a decision at that point in time without going through the 19 steps and the six months of putting a person through this long process. Same thing with counsel. I I get it. You probably do need interrogatories. You probably do need requests for. Uh, am I saying that right? Request for admission.
1: Well, yeah. There's requests for admissions and requests for documents. Both well, certainly Okay, purposes.
0: and and you probably need you know a, a, some depositions, um, but maybe not in every case. Maybe there's some cases where look, we can cut to the chase and we can file a motion to dismiss or demur or whatever, or a motion for summary judgment based on the you know the the legalities or the coverage in it. And maybe we don't need to go through all those steps. And it's frustrating when you get, to your point, a younger attorney or a newer attorney who you can just tell that their pressure is coming from above, um, mm-hmm. per billable hours, billable hours, billable yeah. hours, hours. And so you can just see it. It's like running through it. It's like, no, I want to know what the chance of success is. And then I'd like to see your plan as how we're going to get to that success instead of you know, we got to do these nine steps first in every single case. Um, I, I just don't, maybe that was a thing of the past. I don't really see that as a productive way to handle litigation, moving Forward.
1: You no, know, for, for me, it took me working under someone who asked why I was doing all yeah. these things. And I remember being really annoyed. I'm like, what? what? Why is it <laughs> Like, I, I did the work. I'm doing all this. Right. But they're like, no, but why, why do you need this step? Why? What is it going to get you? Right. And I'm, I'm like, I don't know. Let's see. Well, no, that's not good enough. You know, like we don't, yeah. we're not just it to see what's happened. Like what, what's your goal and what's your end goal? If this is your end goal. Is this step going to get you to the end goal? If it's not, maybe you don't need the depth to get to your end goal. And at first it's a little uncomfortable because then you come from a place of fear too. Cause you're like, well, like, but what if I don't take the depth? And then later down the road, someone says, well, why didn't you do that? Well, right. but if you come up with the plan ahead of time, be like, this is our goal. And this is how I see us how i think we can reach there and we don't need to at this point i don't think we need to do x y and z to get where we need to be and if you say it up front and maybe maybe you wouldn't agree with me and you'd you'd come back and say no i think i want you to take that depth okay but 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 i i put you i gave my plan out there and gave you a reason why and if you disagree with it that's okay um but it definitely comes from a place of fear i think because it's like well someone's gonna tell me my idea is (laughs) bad
0: right you just you just brought something up that that triggers something in my mind that you know, you ask me, what do I look for? in attorneys, attorneys who are willing to talk to me instead of say, here's what we're going to do. I'll, you know, send you a bill in three months and all the discovery that I've got done. No, how about you talk to me through the process and say, Hey, I'm taking your insurance deposition on a bad faith lawsuit. Um, is there anything in the claim that you saw maybe that, that I'm not seeing that maybe would help me in the deposition or, you know, I'm sending out these requests and, do you really think we need a, I like an attorney who includes me or my manager in the process. Back when I was a younger adjuster handling third-party liability claims in Southern California, it was more like, okay, you send the claim over, it's a, it's a slip and fall or a dog bite. And you know they start all this discovery and then you realize this is a dog bite. It's strict liability in the state of California. We don't need all that, just get the medical bills and let's see how much we can settle this thing for, but they don't communicate you, keep you in the process. I don't really tolerate that anymore. It's some of the better attorneys that I work with, uh, you can, just like we're doing now, you have a conversation with them. It's like, where do you think we should go on this? Todd, you've been doing this a long time. Where do you think we should go on this? And you have that conversation. Those are the ones that I see probably the most successful outcomes. And quite frankly, it's a more pleasant process for, for me and the attorney I'm dealing with, so.
1: Yeah. I mean, you have to work together, you know, and and honestly, a lot of times on on the attorney side, we're getting the file after you've had it probably for quite some time. So at that point, you're actually the expert on it and probably could save a lot of money if we just have a 45 minute phone call (laughs) about about your experience with the claim up to this point and just get us up to speed and like we can come up with a, you know, agreed upon plan at that point rather than, you know, either the attorney or the associate spending, you know, eight hours looking through all these materials, it could be accomplished during a, a shorter phone call. She'd be like, hey, look, this lady, you know, she wants a new kitchen. You know, we, we only gave right. her X amount.
0: Right. <laughs> she
1: want, She really wants, you know, that wolf stove and it just isn't right. covered.
0: <laughs> or, or, you know, sometimes you'll, everything should be in the file. There's an old attitude, it's not the file, it didn't happen. But, yeah. you know, sometimes to your point, you know, I don't know if you want to get into this arena, but public adjusters. So public adjusters, sometimes they're wonderful and they help the process. They're very valuable, help the insurance A lot of times they're not, they're, they're problematic and they try to, you know, inflate the claim and do things at like this. And so sometimes with, when the attorney, when it turns into a, a bad faith lawsuit, to have the conversation with the attorney and say, look, here's the last nine conversations I had with this public adjuster. And here's where I think they're going with it. And here's why that their estimate is, 60,000, our estimate is 10,000. And here's some of the things that I think that we need to really look into. And I think that conversation uh, or the conversation with the insured, like I've been dealing with this insured and she told me right from the get-go, she wants a new kitchen. And even though the cabinets aren't damaged, it's just a little water damage to the floor. She So she's not stopping unless she gets a new kitchen. So that's what we're dealing with. And then we can target the uh, discovery around that and how we get to the bottom line of that.
1: Yeah. Like there are certain like things that are part of a file that aren't part of the file, you know, right. <laughs> you can only learn through a conversation. Um, so it, it, I, it, you know, you're most of your, well, not most of your experience, but a lot of your experience has been in California and Florida. When I hear California and Florida, I'm like, Oh, geez, those are like two yes. like he- heavy states for, yes. um, tough states, tough litigation yes. states. Um, but in your experience, you know what other venues stand out to you as the ones that you're like, oh, like, kind of like similar to, you know, Florida and California.
0: Um, so you hit it, California and Florida. You know, it's funny. I talk to my boss from time to time and say, "Why don't we write business in Florida?" I mean, there's going to be there's going to be hurricanes every single summer. Mm-hmm. The 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 legislature up until recently hasn't been willing to. You know, support insurance companies. Now we have a governor who's done some, in my opinion, phenomenal things in tort reform and attorney fee provisions and, you know, assignment of benefits and certain things like that, which are huge. But, you know, another, the, the Northeast isn't a real picnic either. It's, yeah. um, you know, we've had, we've had a few contentious issues in New York and New Jersey Um that, you know, if or you know better than I do, but venue is almost everything. And in some places where there's no way you're going to get a jury that even remotely thinks business is in the right. And they're going to come into this process thinking all insurance companies are bad. All they're trying to do is rip people off. Well, that's an uphill road, whether you're right or wrong on the law. And so maybe in those cases we try to look if we're that right on the law, can we get this done without a jury, like a motion for summary judgment or a dismissal or something in that regard? If not, you know, do we do we value that case a little differently, knowing that we're not going to get a good a good, a good shake? Um, but you know, Texas, um, uh, some Texas. parts of Texas are are very favorable. Some areas of Texas are not as favorable i found mostly the midwest is you know generally speaking pretty pretty fair and pretty um you know even-handed across the board um depending you know sometimes when you get into some of the bigger cities maybe not so much but um it's hard to top california and and florida for litigious and you know challenging areas for for claim handlers
1: yeah, it is definitely a, a theme I hear quite a bit about. And Texas Texas makes its way in there quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, as to headache headache states. And yeah. then Philadelphia is a headache venue, as are Philly the, is a, <laughs> Philly as Philly are is, the yeah. trust me, I know Philly is a headache venue. You I mean you you lose a motion for summary judgment in Philly just by filing it. You don't even need an opposition <laughs> to lose it. Like, it's i don't even know what's going on half the time it's yeah. just it's ridiculous um and the boroughs in new york aren't, aren't a picnic either <laughs> right. and, and new york is always funny too because um oh, see i'm sorry i did my own thing i was like oh i should turn off my phone and then my someone was covering off off camera <laughs> someone is covering a motion for me and they just fit in new york and just called about it <laughs> um but yeah, one thing that would always happen in New York—this is pre-COVID—you know, you'd have these status conferences, and you'd have to, you know, go up to New York, travel four hours. It doesn't matter if you're if it's 20, 20 miles away or hundred miles away; it's still going to take you four hours to get to Queens, right. and then right. get there. And they have some per diem attorney show up, and they just ask for yep. continuance, and it, and you yep. oppose it, and there's oh, too bad. So they need to drive four hours back.
0: <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and then, crazy and the,
1: the client is like wait why why is the bill so high
0: right like, right
1: <laughs> because I had to drive to Queens twice <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs>
1: yeah yep. um actually I, I want to I wanted to touch on this though because you know you you were you know at and I, I don't want to name names here but you were at one company for a very long time and then then you right. then you switched um you know what has been the biggest eye-opening Thing for you as to like management experience, um, going because you you when you are in some place for so long, you get so accustomed to how how that place you is run, and then in good and bad, then you you move someplace else and you can take some of the good things and some you know know some of the bad things and carry it over. So what has been your experience with that?
0: So working for one of the largest insurance companies, and you know some of the things I really like was like like I said before the promote from within um, policy. Um, the ability, excuse me, um, their training uh, resources, phenomenal training resources that allow um, new to, to the business to come in and literally uh, maybe six months of formalized training to really understand what the contract means, what's in the contract. And then you get an opportunity to work with some more experienced people that, hey, here's some of the tricks of the trade. Um, you know, you don't want to put your ladder on a gutter. You don't want to, you know, just some little things you're not thinking. Um, so that, from that perspective, it was phenomenal. I, I'm so thrilled that I started my career there because I got that, that foundation as I moved up in the ranks and I was a consultant there for a while at their home office. And, and then, you know, in, in leadership for, you know, my last probably 20, 25 years with that company is it took me to come to another company, which is, I, I think I said, earlier, it's a mid-range, mid-sized company where I am the vice president of claims. At the big company, there's a lot of bureaucracy that I, I tease and it's, I am being facetious, but you, know, you form committees to determine whether you need to form another committee to determine if we're going to make a decision on what, how this report should be formatted. And, and you spend a lot of time, it's you know, activity as opposed to results. Where, where I'm at today I, I have an assistant vice president five play managers that report up through me and I'll give you an example last week a vendor came to us and said hey I've got the greatest and neatest cheapest way to do X what do you think At at um, at larger companies you'd put a you get a procurement group together you'd do a you know a, a RFA you you know you you'd, you'd, you'd Uh, um, you know, put people together to examine and do everything. At this one, I got two people in a room. I said, get them on the phone. We got them on the phone. I said, explain it to me, show it to me. Um, Yesterday, we made a decision. We're doing it. We're moving forward. So it took four days to do what sometimes takes four months to do at a company. So that part I really like. The challenge at a a company like the size that I'm at now is resources. Mm -hmm. We don't have those um, exhaustible resources that you can dedicate to training or dedicate to specialized claim handling. We do at a small degree, but you really got to be careful because, um, if your expenses get out of control, it can really impact, uh, you know, the, the, the company. So you really have to be mindful. Um, you know, back in the day, you used to, when I was a first line leader at the other company, if you lose someone or well, you put up a posting and hire someone else. Today, it's a different discussion. When we lose someone, I put on the manager and I say, okay, how many do you have? How many claims are they handling a week or a month? Is everyone on the team working at maximum capacity? Um, do we have the ability to do it with five people where you had it to do a six before? And they got to go through that entire exhausting exercise and sometimes it's yeah. frustrating. But at the end of that, they say, they convince me, yes, we need to replace that person. Or I convince them that, hey, it's not like, this is a position that if you don't replace it today, I'm never going to let you replace it. We can reevaluate it in six months, but we really do need to go through that exercise because expenses are just so incredibly important to a successful company.
1: Um, and it made me think about this too with with hiring, because it's something that we're experiencing is it's really hard to find people. Are you ex- Are you having that... Uh, struggle as well?
0: So yes and we've had that struggle for some time. COVID threw a <laughs> whole wrench into everything but um, we've been forced to go to more of a, uh, a virtual um, business model where we hire people who aren't necessarily in our brick and mortar buildings and um, yes it's been hard to find uh, experienced people because at the larger company, I could take someone right out of college and put them into a training. Unit. Here, I need to plug and play within a week. I mean, they need to be productive and handling claims. So you need to find experienced people. And part of it's the interview process. Part of it's the recruiting process. Um, you know, some people interview really well and tell you stuff that, <laughs> You know they make it sound good, but when you dig down and there's ways to ask questions you like give me specific examples of when you handled a non weather water claim in Miami, Florida, and what was the result of that you know and so it, it's 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 important to to do that, but we've gone through patches I would say in the last twenty four months where it's been very challenging to find um qualified people,
1: yeah I and mean, we I, I, we're struggling with it on the attorney side and the, the paralegal side and the admin side, just from finding qu- quality people a- and affordable people. Yes, <laughs> like, yes. Like I don't know, like everyone's costing more money. But it, I mean, it's I know
0: <laughs> which, some of the demands that we see from you know for salary demands, it's just like whoa, whoa, <laughs> and yeah. they're they're saying if you don't give it to me, someone else will, and I don't know whether that's true or not, but. Uh it's it's been very challenging and eye-opening to see the the, the salary demands coming out of the, the newer folks.
1: Yeah. And and part of me is like, mm-hmm. you know, way to go, know your worth, you know. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> like, right. You got you gotta ask for it, you know, you, you 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 know, you wanna cheer for them, but at the same time you're like but you're a third year associate so <laughs> you're not going to be that profitable.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So
1: we really cannot pay you like we are not a giant firm. Like we really can't. Right. It, that's that's you got to go to somewhere else if you want that those sorts of dollars. Yep, yep, <laughs> yep. yep. Well, well Todd, we're just about out of time, but I didn't want to let you go without asking you this because I ask every everyone this. Um, you know, if you were to go back knowing what you know now and go back to your younger self, what advice would you give yourself?
0: Um, you know, I would say, enjoy, enjoy the ride at every step of the way. You know, I, it, it's with parenting. When you first get married, if you, if you start having kids, you maybe miss a little piece. Well, my wife and I got married, we could, we took a couple of two, three years and we traveled Went to Hawaii, went to Europe. And then when you start having kids it's a different experience and you got to enjoy that experience. And now that my kids are out of the house and they're all um, working and independent and this is that, I enjoy that phase. And so yeah. I think early on in my career, I didn't step back and I could have enjoyed each phase a little bit better and appreciated what I had a little bit more um, early on. And, you know, that's probably, easy said, because, you know, as you get older, you could, it's easy to look back and say, I should have done this, I should have done that. But when you're in the moment, when you're, you know, 22 years old or 23 years old, you're in the moment of that, there are things that you can really step back and appreciate uh, what you have and how you got it. And, you know, the, the family aspect that you have and the, 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 the job that you have and, and the abilities. So um, I don't know, that, that might be a little corny, but, you know, I would say just enjoy it each stage along the way.
1: I think that's great advice because I find myself thinking that too, like, oh I I, I just wish when the kids were little I would have, you right, know exactly been like, you know, whatever, been more patient or I, I wish when I was twenty I would have gone out more, you know. <laughs> like you, right. You know, so I, I think that's really good advice because you know, you have to if you don't in, enjoy the moment you're you're in right now, whether it be professionally or personally, you know, you And I think you're always gonna have a little bit of regret regret. Like you're always not gonna be able to do it all, but you have to at least day for what it is. So I I think it's corny, but I like it. (laughs) (laughs)
0: It's
1: all right. The corny's okay. (laughs)
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Okay. Well, Todd, thank you so much for taking the time out and and chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. I know everyone's so busy, so I I appreciate everyone who comes on and takes an hour out of their day to Pre-recorded and chat. <laughs> get, get yeah, these burning well, no, questions. this has been
0: great. <laughs> I, I really, I really, I really enjoyed it, and um, I hope our meeting is not a one and done, and we can stay connected on LinkedIn and other places. Um, but this has been very pleasurable. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you, and for everyone listening, if you like what you hear, please like and subscribe to the Defense of Rests at Apple Podcasts, and you can also find us at YouTube at TDNR Podcasts.